This episode was recorded a long time ago, and at that time I wasn't as skilled as I am now at recording in a crowded, loud public environment. That's still something that I'm improving on, to be honest, but this was very early days, so there's a lot of background sound. Sorry about that. I think it's still a great conversation and deserves to be shared with you. The other thing about it being recorded a long time ago is that Angela, who I'm talking to, is now in very different circumstances. So what I'm doing is on Friday, there's going to be another episode of Getting Better Acquainted, which follows up with Angela and also it follows up with last week's guest, Sophia. They're both in my writing group and so Friday's episode was recorded on our second writing retreat away, which we went on last summer. And it updates you on their lives, where they're at now, and covers some of the areas that I failed to get the first time. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Look out for the one that's coming on Friday. Thanks very much. 45-year-old guys with long hair and spandex eating chicken dinners, you know. And they're, yeah. just, they're no longer living the dream either. No they're, way, yeah. At the time, I thought it was like the most natural thing. It was really? a big adventure. But I had no fear. I wasn't smart enough to have any fear. I so wouldn't. What I did, I would never do today. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we are getting better acquainted with Angela. Hello, Angela. Hello. <laughs> Before I do my two first questions, I should just explain we're in a, we're in a cafe in Bethnal Green. What's the, what's the name of the cafe? It's the Gallery Cafe. The Gallery Cafe. So that's the, the sounds that you can hear in the background. How did you first meet me? Well, I first met you when you were working at... Oakwood Library. You were the go-to guy for anything that actually needed to be done. That was one of, the, one of the things when I started at the library service, is that you sort of have to figure out who in each branch is the person that can actually get done what you need to get done. And although you weren't necessarily in charge there... <laughs> no, I wasn't. You were the one that was probably most on top of things and was reliable to follow through on instructions. So... That's good. I always, I don't, I never feel very reliable. It's always interesting when people sort of say that about me. It's, uh, it's a good thing, I guess. What do you do now? At the time, I was, I was reader development librarian, so I was you know, singing to babies and things like that. And then, then you sort of joined in our extended group. Yeah, eventually, yeah. Now, with the library restructuring, I've been sort of eased out of the library service. I, I had an opportunity during their structuring to apply for a job that wasn't in the library service. Doing something similar to the marketing job that I was doing in the library service, but for a larger portfolio. And it was a bit of a promotion, but it would pretty much leave my librariness behind. I did get the job, and I, and I did actually puzzle over whether or not I was going to take it, because I like being a librarian. It's what I do. It's what my master's degree is in. It's what I've done for the last sort of 10 years. But I did take it sort of seeing on the writing on the wall, I think, for the library service, knowing that it's going to be harder and harder to keep up an interesting job in the library service. A lot of the jobs, I think, that are now in the library service are managing the buildings and the day-to-day, the mechanical things, and I like the more sort of like project-oriented things. So, anyway, marketing officer now for the council. You are a qualified librarian. Yes, yes I am. I mean... People often don't realise that, like teaching or doctors or whatever, you have to to get a a proper degree in librarianship to be a librarian. Yes, so in addition to my four-year undergraduate degree, which is what we have in the US, I got a master's degree in library science, which I did when I was about 23, 24. I mean, it took, because I did it part-time, it took me a couple of years. I was working full-time at a library at the time in the States. They paid for half of my degree. And then they guaranteed me a job after. It's brilliant. It's like, how can you turn that down? Yes. Yes, I will let you pay for half of my master's degree so that you can then pay me more money for the and job that you already given it. Was being a librarian a, a calling or a thing you fell into? Oh, totally fell into it. I mean, it's not like... 
I, I, I was an avid reader as a kid, and I think most librarians that you talk to will say, oh, I love books. I love yeah. the library. I grew up going to the library all the time. And I did. I was one of those kids. But my... <coughs> Before I became a librarian, I did a two-year internship with um, a talent booking agency, and I basically was promoting hair metal bands and doing A&R, so I was on the complete other end of the spectrum from being a librarian. You know, I wanted, I initially wanted to be a screenwriter when I went to university, and then I decided I wanted to be a rock promoter. When I graduated from university, I had discovered that the music industry was not for me. It was just too dirty. It was just like a dirty industry. What do you mean by that? It was hard for a woman to be in the industry, for one thing. You have to be a really tough woman in order to survive. There's a lot of sort of misogyny, just how you're treated and and then you know, the whole ex- what, what I felt like the sort of the managing expectations because you have to sort of sell the bands but in order to sell the bands you have to sell the bands on the idea of being sold and that I found really as somebody who just loves music and like, you know I found that really sort of difficult like well so a lot of musicians don't like the idea of being sold in a way as well it's a complicated weird thing but you're sort of like, you guys are awesome. And you sort of talk this big game. You guys are awesome. We're going to get you a million dollar record deal universal. It's going to be great. You're going to have a music video. And you get, you know, and they go through the thing where they're playing shows. And you're like, shows are great. You guys need to rock. Because we're going to have this person here and this person here. And we're going to have photographers. And then they go through this whole thing of being groomed to be signed. And then they don't get signed. Or they get signed and then they sell no records. And then they get dropped by the label. And seeing that process, seeing a band that you have believe in, like, fail as well. Yeah. It's just hard. It's hard. So were you officially a promoter then? No, no. I mean, it was an internship. You have to keep this in mind. I wasn't, it was like, I was paid out of a man's pocket $50 at the end of the week and taken to a couple conferences, but... It wasn't, it wasn't anything special. I was still going to university full time. It's, it's funny, I mean, I, I, I kind of recognise what you're saying. It's, you, know, you, you were selling selling dreams to teenagers, I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, I thought, having been in the music world in London for a while, I kind of would like to meet some people trying to sell me some dreams. You know, it, 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 it's certainly here at this time. You get books, but the people don't care about the bands as a lineup, they don't program a night of music that's the same and they don't get the audiences in, they expect you to bring all the audiences. Yes. I mean, was it like that? Yeah, even even then, we had to get audiences. You know, I was writing press releases, things like that. I managed an A&R project for a band that was coming up, and that's what I did first of all. I mean, I didn't manage it, but I was on that project. Okay. I mean, you have to keep in mind, I was like 20 yeah. years old this, so, and like, knew nothing about the world. Yeah. I had grown up in like rural Michigan, so this was... This is quite fancy stuff. But the way that the company that I was working for, small small company, three guys, they made their sort of bread and butter promoting hair bands from the 80s that were doing something called the Rock Never Stops Tour. Right. So this is bands like Quiet Riot, L.A. Guns, Slaughter, that sort of Okay, thing. yeah, yeah. And they were touring, and they had audiences built in. So they would go, and they would, you know, have a... Sell out, not sell out, but have a you know several tens of thousands of crowd at a place like a big amphitheater, a big sort of concert, outdoor concert venue, on like a big summer tour. That's how the company actually was making money is to sort of fund their sort of A and R arm. At you know, 20 years old, I would be going backstage at some of these concerts, seeing these metal bands, and it's like. 45-year-old guys with long hair and spandex eating chicken dinners, you know, and they're yeah. just, they're no longer living the dream either. No they're, way, yeah. You know, and they're just kind of... That's a, it's a sort of Wizard it, of Oz moment, I guess. Like, it's like, so, it's like they're 9 to 5. It's yeah. like, right, now, tonight we're in Detroit, we're playing the DJ Music Theater, we're... Yeah, another chicken dinner on the road type yeah. thing. Yeah. Play, play the show, have a couple beers, get on the bus. You know, they, they, you know, they were just kind of... Uh, yeah. Making do. Make, yeah. Yeah, exactly. like, 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 like most of us, I guess, do in some way. So you stopped being a promoter, like in, yeah. in A&R, and you moved into libraries. There was a year break in between. Okay. Where I moved to New Zealand. To New Zealand? <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, so, so having become disenchanted with what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. 
I had an English degree from a good university and two years experience doing something that I no longer wanted to do. So my, my solution to this was to move to New Zealand for a year. I had also never lived outside of Michigan and it was important for me to to travel. Yeah. So it's like I want to go really far away. What's really far away but still speaks English? And I literally saw an ad in a magazine for the 100% New Zealand ad campaign. You know, 100% pure. I was like, I'm going to move to New Zealand. And I remember calling my dad and saying, Dad, I'm going to move to New Zealand. And he's like, Yeah, right. And in a month's time, I had a passport. I never had a passport before. You right. know, I was you know 21 years old, didn't have a passport. A typical American. A typical American. American and made all of the arrangements. I uh, worked with a company that brokerages, you know, work placement programs abroad for you know U.S. students. Did you go on your own? Yeah, went on my own. Wow, that's that's twenty-one. Yeah, I was 22. Well, by the time I graduated, I was 22, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I... I mean, it's funny, these things, isn't it? You, just, you sign up to them and then you do them and you can't really believe you're doing them at the time. At the time, I thought it was like the most natural thing. It was really? a big adventure. But I had no fear. I wasn't smart enough to have any fear. I so wouldn't... Not my before you could do a whole lot of research about this sort of thing. You know, this is, this is just at the time when not every bit of every detail was available on the internet. Yeah, you know, yeah. things like guidebooks and personal recommendations. I remember those days too, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, nowadays I would have like a spreadsheet with everything, every last detail was going. I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know when it was going to work. I just knew that I was going to move to New Zealand. You know, when I got there to Auckland, Landed in state of you know five days six days in Auckland. Decided I hated Auckland. I had no desire to be there. And heard about this guy that really liked skiing, so he was moving you know I don't know six hundred miles south to the the South Island to a town called Queenstown. I looked it up in a guidebook. Sounded like a nice place, and I decided that's where I'm going to live. <laughs> so I went to a car fair, spent three hundred U.S. dollars. I think it was six hundred New Zealand dollars on a 1985 Golden Gemini. Never having driven on the wrong side of the road, and decided that I was going to do the three-day drive in my new car on the wrong side of the road, shifting with the wrong hand to Queenstown, and I did. Do you think it's having no fear, or do you think it's because you had to? Because you, you know, if you've gone all that way, but I, I, I think the problem, I think the fear thing is to start these things. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't take those kind of risks now to start them. But once you throw yourself into things, then that's where you're like, oh my, it's, you know, oh my god, I'm actually doing this. Like, do you not have those kind of moments quite often in your life where you're like, I'm an adult, I'm doing something insane, and I'm doing it because I'm, you know, I. I, I don't know. Maybe you don't. I, you know, I um, I kept a pretty detailed journal. Yeah. At the time, and I haven't read it since. And I and I'd like to go back and read to see how I really thought. Because looking back, I think that everything that I was doing fit perfectly what I thought how it was going to be. Like I knew it was going to be a bit of an adventure, and I wasn't going to know what was going to happen on, and I wanted to rely on the kindness of strangers to get me through things. And yeah, I stayed. Um, totally, like people I had, like friends of, I actually literally stayed with friends of strangers. You wow. know, like, like I would meet a guy and I'd be like, oh, I'm heading down to, you know, this town. And he's like, oh, I've got a friend there. I'll call him up and he can stay on the sofa. And, and I looked, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, that's really crazy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. And I would go, and I would go, and I would stay on the guy's sofa. And he'd be like, well, that's what you think. Stop it. You know, he was like, you know. But also New Zealand has that sort of, culture where, well, at least, you know, the 10 years ago that I was there, where hitchhiking was still very prevalent, lots of backpackers, lots of tourists, there's lots of sofa sleeping. You know, I had, I had, when I finally got a house there with a bunch of roommates, strangers, we always had random people sleeping on our sofa. It's just sort of that way. Considering the environment, it wasn't actually that odd. That house that you stayed in with lots of people, was that the, the commune? Thing? No, that was, that where, was earlier. That's where I lived at university. Okay, well, keep on that, Fred, and then I'll go back, jump cut. Went from New Zealand, yep. back to America. Yeah, so I basically was broke. Yeah. How I ended up coming back, so I probably would have stayed on for quite a long time, is my mom bought me a ticket 
home. And she says, I bought you a ticket home. You best be on that plane. <laughs> I was meant to go for six months, and I think I was getting on to about nine months. And Mom was also noticing how much money I didn't have anymore. And said, you, you're, you're overextending yourself. And yeah. I was throwing everything on credit cards, really. Like, I, have credit cards. I think that's what everybody does when they're around that age. And then when we're around this age, we look back and think, what the hell did we do? Why did I we know. do that? I'll just, I'll just pay for them. It's like this magic plastic wand yeah. that pays for things. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I, I actually don't really regret it because it was amazing. But anyhow, so I get I get back and I have to move back in with my parents in, you know, Allendale, Michigan. Wow, so you've gone from being really free, like in a different part of the world, living out a crazy yeah. fantasy, and then suddenly you're back with your parents. And now I'm living with my parents. Wow. Yeah. And and I was like, right, I need to get a job. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, I didn't know what I was going to be. And I just started looking through the newspaper to see who was hiring. When I was at uni, I spent four years having work-study placement, meaning that I was sort of entitled to a university job because I had financial aid. So I worked in my dorm library after I stopped living at the dorm because I really enjoyed it. It was like it was an easy job. They sort of made me the manager of it. And so I had sort of four years of experience working in a library. It was a very small library, you know, sort of four walls with, you know, a thousand books and mostly videos and CDs that kids living in the dorms came in to rent. Anyway, so I was like, oh, I have some library experience. Maybe I'll get a job working in the library. But until I figure out what I'm going to do. And then I got a really good job working in a library. Libraries are, are fairly well paid in the U.S. And I had, you know, full-time employment, good benefits. And I worked in the, the library where I worked was brand new, $7 million library, absolutely gorgeous. And the people I worked with were amazing, and and I loved it. And so, so you know, after six months after working, when they said you should get your master's, I said yeah, sure. And at that time, I thought this is as good as it's going to get. You know, I'm I'm an English major living in Grand Rapids. This is how I'm going to make my life. I'm going to be a librarian in Grand Rapids. A librarian in Grand Rapids can make a good living and have a high quality of life. If I were still there, doing what I do, or doing what I was doing, I could easily afford a four-bedroom house, an acre of land. Wow. You know? Yeah. And, and, that, and, that's, and that was sort of like what, what I was envisioning. Now you're a marketing officer living in London. Yeah. How did that happen from there to there? I never lost my wanderlust. So I continued to travel, and I like, and I like traveling. So I decided I was going to go to Iceland and for a rock music festival. And when I was in Iceland, I met a very nice English boy. And um, we kept in touch as friends. And within months, just via corresponding over email, we had fallen absolutely in love. And knew that we wanted to get married. And got, yeah, we got engaged very fairly quickly. And got married sort of a year later. And that and then, was that. And then you came here. And then I came here. And it was sort of like, you know, would you... And it wasn't a hard decision. Would you like to leave Grand Rapids, Michigan? Which is, which is you know, pleasant and nice. Or would you like to come with... You know, and would you like to marry the man you love? And live in London. You know, and at the time he was living in... Canary Wharf drove a TVR I always think Canary Wharf's like a science fiction fantasy going in on the Doctor's right way away into Canary Wharf with all of those metal buildings around you with all the mirrors Canary Wharf is crazy because everything it's privately owned estate so everything is perfectly manicured you know my grocery shopping was done at Waitrose which has a champagne and oyster bar yes. you know and I was in walking distance to you know the DLR which is like running a freaking roller coaster yeah especially and, if you get on the front yeah I love it it was sort of like weekend trips up to Bath, you know, through the tree-lined streets in the TBR convertible. I was like... Wow, yeah. It was like, this is, this is the most amazing life ever. You're living in a different movie. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I couldn't believe my good fortune. You know, not only did I have the most amazing husband ever, but, you know, I was, I was living in London doing, ama- you know, doing amazing things. I have to say, though, I was also 
for the first sort of year that I lived here, I didn't have a job. And I started, I did go through a series of just sort of like isolated depression where I'm like, I'm lonely. I don't have any friends. I don't have a job. That was hard. And it was a hard transition. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it, it's hard to leave your family and everybody you've ever known and come and live somewhere else. Puts a lot of pressure on a relationship, I imagine, as well. But the friends then come through him. He's always been extremely supportive. If I ever wanted to do anything, he would only just encourage it. Like, yeah. Like, if you want to volunteer, volunteer. If you want to, whatever you want, if it will make you happy, I'll, I'll do anything, everything in my power to make that happen. You know? Yeah. He's, he's that sort of guy. You know? well, that's nice. Yeah. Like, it's pretty amazing. So when I first started working for the library service, everyone I was working with this has been my experience in the library I mean for me it's they're always older and women whereas at least you've got one one half of the kind of frame of reference I've always been the only young man in the, in the, in the library yeah. so it's like I didn't have that life then where I was sort of going out after work I wasn't working in the city you know so I was sort of missing out on half of that London lifestyle yeah. you know where you go out with your workmates after work go to a few pubs grab some food maybe go out to a club you know, I didn't have that. I was I was living the sort of suburban Michigan life, only in London, in a very and then what I thought was quite a small flat. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, flats here are much smaller than I mean, America. You have a house, don't yeah. you? Everyone has a house. Yeah, they all seem to be detached, let alone semi-detached. You know, it's like a July summer night. You have the you have this. It's no air conditioning. You have the sliders open. It's sweltering. There's all this noise going on. Sirens, people yelling, music, and you're just like, oh my god, this is terrible. I could be at home in the countryside, sitting on the fire, lying in the pool. You know, you're just like, oh. <laughs> grass is always greener. Yeah, I guess it is. I guess this is a nice transition to talk about Michigan, about your kind of childhood, I guess. Now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had this sort of yeah idyllic rural childhood. As I became an adolescent, I knew that I would never want to live where I grew up. As a kid, I always thought I was going to live in New York or LA or something like that. And then, after I'd lived in New Zealand for a while, I thought I was going to live in Grand Rapids. Possibly, I actually did for for about a year flirt with the idea of getting a law degree um, and moving out to East Coast. That was probably the next step if I didn't marry a nice sort of Michigan guy. But no, it was. I mean, I grew up in a in a nice, typical ranch style house. My mom worked part time. She was, you know, very much a, a mom. You know, sort of the made strawberry jam and fresh cookies and, you know, always packed by lunch for me and we had a pool and wow. all my, my parents were always really liberal, always let me have a slumber party, you know, they were always into entertaining so I always had friends around, they would go pick up my friends for me and bring them, bring them over and we'd play in the pool, we'd play on the computer, we'd you know, I had a house that had, unlike my friends, my parents had actually built an extension on our house with the idea of sort of entertaining. So it had one of these 1970s sunken pits type wow. thing. We always had people around. Mom was always cooking, you know. There's always snack foods, like, that teenagers, kids of teenagers would like. My mom always made sure everything was taken care of. I don't really have a whole lot of worries. That's good. I mean, I've talked to a few people in this podcast now who've had happy childhood. It's interesting, though, because my brother had an unhappy childhood, and he had the same parents. Is he older? He's 10 years older than me. I think it just depends where you're at. The happy part of my childhood, I lived in the countryside, is amazing when you're young. My brother was six years older, so it was a bit more difficult. I guess when you hit adolescence like he did that, that's when you like you say you find the restrictions of the countryside yeah. rather than the openness of it yeah adolescent like childhood up to age sort of 12 amazing yeah great happy times happy go lucky really happy kids adolescence it and it all kind of went to shit you know? yeah I was an ugly child <laughs> well I was very awkward I had big nerd glasses my face hadn't yet grown into my teeth you know <laughs> I had no boobs I 
kids at school picked on me. I was also extremely precocious. My mother always put me in like special summer programs, and we did a lot of traveling compared to my friends. So I had like a larger worldview. At the age of twelve, I was reading like Harper's Bazaar and The New Yorker. So I just sort of, I just sort of felt a bit more of myself. I also had a mild disdain at that point for my contemporaries. So school became very tough. And did for, you show for, that disdain? <laughs> you think? I, I was, I was, everybody in my class knew that I was the smart one. So it's not that I had, I was the, I was the nerd. If, if you were, it's sort of the Saved by the Bell. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, I was the Jesse Spato. Okay. You know? Yeah. So in, in high school, I get, you get to a point in high school where it's four, you know, it's four years where you're still with the same group of kids. It's not like here. But after two years, we all had driver's licenses. So sort of two years, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, things were mildly uncomfortable because you're still sort of stuck in your town doing everything with everybody in your town. But then when you become 16, 17, 18, you have a car, you can go out and join your niches. You went to a small school, didn't you? So small then, so like all of the all of the groups that we all think of from from American films or from yeah. or from our school lives. I mean, they weren't they weren't very big, were they? I mean, you were like the only goth in the village or something. Weren't you? No, I, mean, I mean, there were a couple of us goths, but there weren't enough of us to like make a whole clique. You know? Yeah. I mean, the the goths. And were you all different ages as well? That's always yeah, the problem. Yeah, we were we were different ages. Yeah, there were ninety people in my graduating class. There were five hundred people in my whole high school, which isn't really enough people to make up cliques. Cliques. Pretty much everybody was athletic. Even my my good friend, who was sort of like a real sort of stoner, played volleyball. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's that sort of place. Everybody has to sort of multitask. You were a goth, weren't you? Yeah, I was a little gloom cookie on the weekends. On the weekends, a weekend girl. A weekend girl. So you didn't show that at school? I did sometimes. It got to be sort of a running joke at school, actually, because I would sort of be like, I'm going to dress up. I didn't have enough golf clothing to dress up all five days a week, so I would dress up on, <laughs> on Fridays. And my friend Mike was sort of like the guy who did the morning announcements over the intercom. And so he started calling it Super Gothic Friday. And a couple of my friends were also goths, but also just goth on Friday. So we sort of made it our own little thing. It was like Super Gothic Friday. And he would say, and just in case you forgot to be Super Gothic Friday. And here's, you know. Oh, wow, on the school intercom <laughs> yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, it was, and it was fun. You also have to keep in mind that I was class president making straight A's. So if I came into school wearing enormous O-rings, bondage gear, and vinyl trousers, the principal sort of just looked at me inside, but didn't really... My God, I was a straight A student, though. I was never popular with the... Anyone really, I don't think, not even the teachers. But I wasn't allowed to get away with everything. I was allowed to get away with a few. Actually, that's they definitely they definitely overlooked. Like there were two times where I was unofficially suspended <laughs> rather than officially suspended because they wanted my. So I, I, mean, I was lucky in that respect. Although I don't actually agree with with those decisions. I think everyone should be treated equally. But I did benefit from that. But I never never was allowed to wear bondage gear. I, I got told off once for having an open shirt on a hot day. Still bitter about it. They, they didn't have rules in place saying no bondage gear. They might now. Ah. But at the time, I was, you know, not, not necessarily myself, but certainly the kids in my group were sort of the first ones to kind of start coming to school dressed that way. Okay, so you were sort of the, the first people to challenge this, this sort of yeah. situation. And because... I was such a good kid, you know, my mom was a substitute teacher at the school, it was at the small school, everybody knows each other, everybody's sort of related, and I was like, I was you know, organizing the prom, and, yeah. you know, doing everything, and you know, it was sort of, it was sort of overlooked, because it wasn't that, you know, oh, it's fine, it's Angela. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it would be good if they had didn't introduce rules against bondage gear. If, if kids are doing all right, they shouldn't really yeah. have to be worrying about this. I, stuff. I, I don't, I don't know what the rules are now. I'm yeah. interested to see what the dress code at, at school is. In America, we we have these cliques because we're allowed to, to express ourselves through how we dress. Whereas here, it's uniform, and you know, you Most might be places, the, yeah. it might be the kid who 
you know, you might be the kids who wear their ties, and I think at my husband's school, it's like, oh, we were the rebels, we were our ties really short. Like yeah, that's, that's, yeah, there, there was that short tie thing going on for a bit. Most schools now are trying to, I think most comprehensive schools are sort of trying to avoid ties altogether now. Like, when I was at school, uh, there was, like, the first couple of years of school we all had to wear ties and then they brought in polo shirts with, with a logo on with like like branding yeah but I, I think everyone preferred that a little bit to be honest yeah I was the kid at school who yeah I, was, I had, had hats and didn't wear the right shoes and I was always breaking the rules in mild ways I did get sent home no I never got sent home I did get I did get have a few articles of clothing that was asked not to wear again. Okay. Uh, it's mostly t-shirts with profanity. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I can understand that. Final trousers, fine. But if your shirt says sex on it, you can't have that. Oh, that's the. I didn't even know sex was a profanity. I guess it is. I'm not very good at no, noticing what are the what are the bad words are. So I've just been too overexposed. I think I, I remember the shirt actually. It was a it was a t-shirt for a surf product. It's called Mr. Zog's Sex Wax. And I think I was wearing a t-shirt that said, Mr. Zog's Sex Wax, the best for your stick, you know. <laughs> I was like, ha, 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 that's a funny t-shirt. I'm going to wear that to school and see what happens. I was asked not to wear it again. Secondary school was kind of harder than childhood. Secondary school was harder. I was living in a place where I was no longer felt like I belonged. Yeah. And I was also not that attractive, and my friends were very attractive, and it was definitely one of those sort of high school movies where I was the nerdy, ugly girl who was jealous of the pretty girls in her school, even even though I I was friends with them, but I was totally very were out and they would get all of the attention and I was just homely up to a point well I mean it did get to a point where sort of when I was 17 I had a bit of a high school makeover got contact lenses cut my hair dyed it blonde do you still wear contact lenses? oh yeah I'm blind blind as a bear okay and actually started hanging out in a coffee shop in my town. So my town was uni- also had a, had a university with about 15, 20,000 students. So when I was at high school, I sort of outgrew a lot of the classes that my high school could offer. And I had such a lovely school. That was, I mean, my school was very, very conservative, but they also knew their limits. And I was fortunate enough that they were like, we can't what you want to do but and they actually paid for my university classes and gave me time off like excused me from school so you sort of went to university early yeah and you hung out in the coffee shop there to meet the university men then I guess yes I never did in a high school store my first boyfriend was at Wisconsin so I just um, I sort of like transition very quickly, I guess. I, did, I never dated anyone from my own year at school. They were always in a year above. But uh, I never managed to get as high as, as, as university. So. 17. My first boyfriend, I think, was When you went to college, yep. you lived in a, a kind of hippie commune thing, didn't I, you? Yes, I did. So, not the whole time, you know, you're there for four years. Yeah. So, first year I was in the dorms. Second year, I rented a house with my friends from the dorms. That was actually a very difficult year because I ended up really not getting on with the people that I moved in with. Oh, uh, that's always hard. While I was there, I, I joined... Uh, a brewing club. Well, I can tell you. A, a brewing club. Yeah, beer, like beer brewing. Beer brewing. Beer brewing. My dad's an avid home brewer, so when I was in high school, I would brew with my dad. Yeah, my dad did home brewing. Yeah. I tried a bit of that at uni as well. Yeah. I didn't have a class. So I sort of joined that when I was freshman, 
really early on. Also because in the U.S. you can't drink legally until you're 21. But there's no laws against a 19-year-old buying cops. And That's very and, and good point. Yeah. So it was cool. My mom and I were always fairly close, but I didn't have a lot coming with my dad. Brewing something that we could do together. And I really enjoyed that time with my dad. Yeah. So I joined the North State Brewers Co-op. Mostly guys. There were, there were two girls. And quite a few of the guys lived in this place called Fish House. And that's where all the meetings were. That's where we did the work. Big house, lots of bedrooms, nice cool basement. Because so many people lived there, had a commercial kitchen. And so that was perfect for brewing. Giant gas stove, giant pots, you know, big sinks, everything that you need to, to do some brewing. And it was very much a cooperative effort. We would all sort of chip in a couple dollars to pay for the ingredients, so it cost about you know, $35 to brew five gallons, and then we'd all make it together, we would have a meeting where we did tastings, take notes, so that we would sort of, it's all very organized, but there were forms that we would you know, if we were brewing an IPA, we'd each bring a couple bottles of an IPA, and sample them so that we could get an idea of what, what, how we wanted our IPA to be, wow. and we would each take turns doing lessons on things like choosing water quality, hot tasting, bitterness, and anyway, very organized. I ended up coming President of the North State Brewers Club, <laughs> the brew mistress. But I fell in love with this house that these guys were living in. And every time I would go there, I thought it was like the coolest place. And everybody was so welcoming, and it was such a vibrant place to live. It was also really cheap. And so I ended up living there my last two years of university. Yeah. There were two houses next door to one another that were both co ops, and we all shared one communal kitchen. So all in all, there were about 40 of us that lived between these two houses, and there were some boarders that would come have their meals with us. Everybody had a job that they had to do. We all had to contribute four hours of labor to the house a week. Today, they're some of my best friends. How many people did you live with? My bedroom, there was just two of us. Right. But in my house, there was... Twenty. Yeah. Wow. No. I lived with ten people for a year at uni. That was hard. Did everybody stick to their four hours of contribution? For the most part, this is a house that had been in existence since the thirties. Right. So we have a strict constitution. There was, you know, a really formal governance process, monthly meetings. Oh wow. There were elections for president, vice president. Of the house. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there were other co-ops on the campus besides our two. There were about sixteen, I think. So we had representation on the larger campus cooperative council. We were members of North American Cooperative Association. There's a whole body of people who are into co-ops. It was a really organized place. Yeah. You know, and that and that also suited me. That sort of thing. That it was a bit hippie, but also very organized. That's kind of that's kind of very very appropriate for you. I loved it. That's I love And my jobs were I cleaned the kitchen because yeah. I like to clean kitchens. I cleaned the bathrooms because I didn't trust anybody else to do it. <laughs> I was like, I know I'm going to be I'm going to be like really fastidious about it, so I'm gonna have to But I also was the party planner, or as we called it, flight attendant. Okay. So I organized the parties. <laughs> Like. Whenever you have 40 like-minded people living, you know, in a big front porch and a beer machine, you, you can't go. That's, yeah, that does sound pretty amazing. I enjoyed my year of living with, well, nine other people and their girlfriends, and so, or, or boyfriends, so it worked out as quite a lot. I enjoyed that year, but I also found it very, uh, it's not an experience I'd want to go back to, I don't think. They are, they are sort of lifelong friends. I can go... I oh, can, yeah. Yeah, I can go a couple years without talking to one of them, and somebody will be like, oh, you know, so-and-so's coming to London, you know. Half my house I'm still lifelong friends with. They were, they were rips in my house. We weren't so good at, good at, good at being friendly. Jump cut forward to now. Your husband is a startup. Founder. A startup founder of yeah. a startup company. Yeah. What's it like being a startup wife? It's a roller coaster. <laughs> you never, you never, like, you sort of have to react to good news or bad news. That, that my husband comes up with, like, good news! We've just signed up so and so for a big contract. They're going to pay us X amount of pounds per month to manage these things. Or, good news, we got, you know, finally 
under the first round of, of funding. Yeah. So that you do when you have a startup, you get investment. That's yeah. the only way you're going to survive. So we spent a long time. Although my husband's quite lucky in that he didn't have to pay for developers because he is himself a developer, and his father has been very generous with supporting the company as it was being built. So he was able to pretty much build the company bootstrapping, whereas a lot of startups have to get funding before they can even create a product. So we had a product before we even got funding, which is sort of the backwards. It's sort of the San Francisco way of doing things. It's not necessarily the London, but it's not the London way of doing things. But we needed, in order to take the company forward, you have to get some amount of revenue, which is unlikely until, you know, you sort of have to do marketing and things like that. For that, you need investment. You know, it's a the chicken and egg process. Yeah. So for a year and a half, we've been trying to get And it's like you go to a VC or you go to an in, in the VC. So it's sort of like we're preparing What's a VC? A venture capitalist. Oh, okay. And there are sort of two rounds of funding that you go to. One's called an angel round, which is usually a small round between anywhere between 100 and 500,000, where usually a group of individuals will sort of band together and do like a small round. And then usually people go on to the next round, which is a VC round, which can be more in the sort of 500 to 10 million range, depending on how they feel, depending on your company's valuation. So the company wasn't yet ready for a VC round, so you know we would get turned down by VCs. And then Glenn was really disappointed, and he went through. Growing pains with the company. He had he had an, a guy that he brought on as sort of a CFO that didn't work out. He had to fire him. It's the hardest thing he's ever done. CFO. Chief financial officer. Okay. Well, it um, must be hard to fire someone. And, and it wasn't. And it wasn't an amicable party. Okay. So not only is he trying to like build the product, but he's also you know, sort of a one-man band. He's also getting the funding doing HR, networking, running the business end and the tech end, and dealing with customers, and trying to you know, bring the product more, you know, develop the product yeah. more. So it's just, for him, it's been incredibly stressful. But he, but he has so much enthusiasm yeah. and passion for that. Nothing more. Also, what he does is awesome. And he's, he's been very successful now, isn't he? So, I mean, it, it, he I'm sorry, he, I'm not, not I don't want to jinx it. No, he's, he's not very successful, but he's, he's certainly showing some progress. Yeah, I okay, mean, that's a fair, yeah, that's a, yeah, unless. We're, we're not, we're, we are now making a little bit of money. Right. Not, not a lot. Which is an achievement in the, in the startup yeah. world. It's, yeah. it's like it is in the arts world. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between the arts and the kind of coder, designer kind of world. So I've, I've, had, I've spoken to some other startup people as part of this podcast. Yeah. What's about selling a product? Yeah. Whereas if you're an artist, you're selling your book, your songs, your... your and you're putting, but it's also, you, you know, when you're designing a website or a program, you're putting so much work and time and of yourself into it yeah. that even though it's kind of numbers rather than brushstrokes or uh, words, or whatever, it's still it's something that you have to believe in and you have to go through and you have to make happen. No one else is going to do it for you. You have to make it happen, and that's what I think. Yeah. So what, what's it like being the wife of someone in that, doing that? I mean, that's the... You have to be sort of unwavering. If I said... I can't stand this anymore. You have to go back to what you were doing before, which was making a very comfortable living and a fairly stable job. You know, it would create a lot of resentment. Yeah. You know, you just sort of you have to let, have to let him see this through. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I also, it's not like I, I, but I also think that he is going to become very successful. I, I, I honestly, I think my husband's been a genius, and I think he'll do very well. And it might not be with this, and I, I think he'll do probably okay out of it. He might do very well out of it. But he's just the type of, he's such an entrepreneur. He's so ambitious. He's so smart. That I think but I mean, again it's, again, it's like, oh, I mean, you have to finish the project yeah, in order to learn from that project and then move on to the next project. We also have a bit of an unfairness about it because the alternative isn't that bad. Oh no, you, you, you're, you're 
business didn't succeed, you'll just have to go back to your rather well-paying bank job. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very nice trampoline sort of rubber yeah. yeah. to catch you. And yeah, catch you up again. Yeah. Exactly. So it's at the same time, I just sort of like keep doing my my job and just sort of make sure that we have a bit of a steady income so that we can have things. It has been going from a lifestyle that was quite good to going back to being more sort of conservative about spending and things yeah. like that. We haven't had the trips that I would have liked to have gone on. And so I've missed the traveling. But it hasn't really been a really difficult amount of sacrifice, I do have to admit. But whenever, any time somebody that you love faces Adversity or disappointment, you're, 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 it, it breaks your heart a little so, bit. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And so you're sort of going on a roller coaster, watch, watching him go on a roller coaster, and, and you have to always be supportive, but you and, and and be positive. Yeah. Even though sometimes you might be worried for him or about things, other things. Yeah, exactly. So. But it's been very, it's also been really fun. Yeah. The people in London startup community are, are, are fun. We've met some amazing people, really lovely people that we have good friends with. The types of things that we've been able to do because of some people that we know has, has been slightly extraordinary, you know, different, um, just, you know, sort of like the in crowd, sort of hanging out at Shoreditch House and going to parties yeah. with people who are millionaires, you know. That must be amazing It's like, you know, the other day at work, um, one of my colleagues said to me, oh, you know, you know, we were talking about people who have become successful in startups, and he goes, oh, like that guy who started that, that website where you could buy a pixel, you know, for, for a pound or for a dollar. And I was like, oh, yeah, million dollar homepage. You know, my husband's friends would pay. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was at, I've been to his house. You know. it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's that sort of thing. It's, you kind of know a different kind of celebrities, like the, the web. web yeah. What's it called? There's, there's web. I can't, I can't remember the word for it, but it's like celebrities but with web in it. Yeah, like celebrities. Or yeah, something like that. That people talk about. Yeah, so we 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 know we know some very successful people. Well, that must be interesting. And that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And some of the things that, you know, some of the clubs that we go to and, you know, the networking events, the awards. Things. It must be kind of quite a double life for you, though. Because, you know, you've got, you got, you got your day job. Yeah. And then in the night you're sort of going out to these kind of really fancy, amazing parties. But then you're back working in, in, in public services in the daytime. Yeah. I mean, I find that a little bit in terms of, you know, by day I'm working public services and in the evening I might be like playing a gig or whatever. It's yeah. a strange contrast. Di- and sort of sort of you wake up in the morning and think, hang on, am I the same person that I was last night? You know, and you are, and you carry on. Well, because I'm not myself in, in the, I don't work for a startup. So I am, I am sort of known as Glenn's wife or yeah. as Mrs. Beebe, Mrs. Beebe. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Glenn's friends don't actually know my name, you know. They, they, they know, they know me, they see me, they double kiss me. So you're like Beebe. observing it. Thing? Do you yeah. feel like you're observing it, or do you? Yeah. Well, they find me also. Well, I they find me a bit charming. So they're like, "Oh, what do you do? Oh, the librarian." And they, you know, and Glenn calls me his sort of like moral footprint. You know, the the the, the balance to his sort of you know, very much entrepreneurial trying yeah. to make millions, whereas I'm like, I seem to be. And that's actually one, that's of the, true, one of the reasons that I hated reading libraries is because it's like I really felt that I was that opposite end of the spectrum. Whereas now I'm just sort of doing something that's slightly, you know, it's marketing. Yeah, it's maybe marketing for the pub services, yeah. but it's, it's still marketing. You aren't just a wife. You are also a person with your own kind of ambitions and interests. Um, and I know you. I mean, we we met through the libraries, but. Yeah. I, I found the writing group that I'm yeah. in through you. Yeah. Both me and Jen came to the writing group through you. And you are a writer. Sometimes. You, yeah, you, you're reluctant to say writer because I guess... I don't actually do that much writing. Well, I got a laptop. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So you've got a laptop of your own. I so, have a laptop of my own. Which is a reference to uh, Virginia Woolf's room of one's own. Yeah. What's it like having a laptop of one's own? Well, I only just got it on Tuesday. <laughs> so I haven't really had a chance to, to, to use, you know, go out and use it. But it does mean now that I... I know that I'm not going to work from home. I can't work at home because I immediately want to do laundry or dust. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible procrastinator, and the only way that I can write is if I put myself in this situation where it's really the only thing I to do. Yeah, <laughs> I think most, a, a lot of writers are like that. So, so having a laptop of one's own, I can now sort of. I have to. I'm going to have to. I also know that I'm going to have to schedule time. Like I schedule going to the gym or going to ballet or these sort of things I'm actually going to have to put it in my diary and wrap my head around like I'm not like oh if I, I hope to do a bit of writing today if I have the time after doing everything else I'm actually going to have to prioritise that over wondering I really like your writing I, I realise that you that, that, that your frustration is that you don't do as much of it as you'd like but every yeah. every small admittedly small yeah. tidbits that you keep passing yeah. to the group I'm like I want more I want more yeah. I want well, more. that's good that's good to know so you should and the other thing I think is you're tremendously good at, and I think everybody in the writing group is, agrees with this, is you're a fantastic editor. You're really good at pinpointing what, what's wrong, what isn't wrong. You've got really good analogies for how we should work on our writing. You're like the... the we haven't got a leader of the group, but in, in terms of editing, you're like that. You play that role. Yeah, I mean... And I'm glad that I do play that role because I'm not very good at contributing otherwise. I do worry so much that I overstep that because I don't say this isn't working, but I also say maybe you should try this. And I sometimes feel that I, I might maybe shouldn't interfere with the creative process. So uh, you much. should. Thing is, we have a choice. We can yeah. we can take your advice, yeah. or we can not take your advice. My my friend has this analogy that if somebody suggests a bridge and another person suggests a tunnel yeah. then at least you know that there's a river yeah it's the thing yeah it is good isn't it it's one of the one of the things I, I always remind myself of, about writing you suggest fantastic bridges and tunnels and, and actually I, I think you've you've helped a lot of us with our writing in, in, in lots of ways I mean, you should never worry about about making those suggestions I mean and I think we all sort of do make suggestions as well yeah. I and mean, you know there are times when you get home and you look at the notes and you're like so one person said I should do one thing, the other person said the opposite, and that's just the way yeah. it is, and they have to make their mind up. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is, like, we make the suggestion based on what we have in front of us, but often the piece is part of a larger project. Yeah. So, so that's, that choice that you have to make has to do with, with where the story is going. So you do, we do always say this is what you have to do. It is, if, if you were doing, it's like, you know, choose your own adventure. If this is going to happen, do this. Yeah. But if this is going to happen, you should do this. And like with Jen's piece, I think that's... That's definitely... Yeah. That's the, uh, well, that's definitely the case because she she has lots of twists that she is not sharing with the group because she wants to see how they'll affect the group. Yeah. And so that's very hard to give someone feedback when you don't know what they're trying to do. Yeah. And, that, and that's fine. That's why we're sort of like open-ended about feedback. Well, I think that the writing group's really something that's very it's been something very important. Surprised me actually how how important it has become in my life just because I. I think we're a really good group. We get yeah. on really well. Yeah. And I, when I came to the group, I, I didn't think I... I was like, oh, I'll go to, I'll go to it. But I, I had a... I didn't really enjoy creative writing at uni, which was essentially a writing group. So yeah. I was like, oh, I'll go for a bit, but I'll see if it works out. I mean, I don't contribute that much because I've always got, you know, podcasts that I'm doing and I haven't had any time to get into writing them. But going to that place every, you know, every two weeks and talking to other creative people who are also engaged in the battle to write... It's been really good. And we all just get on really well. Yeah. Like, I just genuinely like everybody that's in the group. And we spend a lot of time talking about non-writing things. Like, we all sort of like the same sorts of films. And we're, just, we're all just sort of a similar age of similar, but different enough tastes. Yeah. It's good. It's we're a really a, good group. I think we're all a similar kind of mental age. Yeah. I think that's probably the, yeah. the way to yeah. describe it. And I think the thing is, talking about films and books and even our lives... That is all kind of part of the writing process. Yeah. The thing I think that people sort of, a lot of the time, writers find it hard to remember that everything they kind of do is work. 
but it is yeah. all life experience yeah. that they then feeds into the work that they're doing. Sometimes people make the big mistake of isolating themselves from the world in order to write about the world, and that doesn't work. There you go, that's my, that's yeah. my opinion. Well, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where the writer's group is, is, you know, I've lived here for five years now, and the writer's group is my unique group of friends that are separate from, from my husband. They're not my husband's friends, or my husband's friends' wives or girlfriends, or my husband's work friends. You, you, you guys belong to me. You know? <laughs> and, and I so value having my friends. Yeah. You know? I finally feel now very, very rooted in yeah. London. And, you know, we're, we're, my husband and I are sort of at a point now where we may have to consider moving to San Francisco. And it's actually a really, really hard thing for me to embrace because I'm like, but I'm not going to wait home. I want to start over and have to make new friends again. I like the ones I have. It's taken me a long time to, to get to this point where I'm truly happy with living here. Uh, and enjoying every aspect of uh, my life here, and, and now I'm like, ah, ah. <laughs> now you want to take me out of it? Ah. Yeah, so, that, that idea makes me sad because I don't want you to go insane. No, but <laughs> it would it would be a very different. It would be a weird life. I'm not. I don't want to think about it too much because we haven't. We don't know what we're going to have to compete. Yeah. It's sort of you know somebody wants to buy. So we may want to buy my husband's company, and if that happens, we will have to. We will probably have to move to San Francisco. If the sale goes through, that's what will happen. It's not like we have to sort of decide on a job. I mean, when somebody offers you that much money to do something, you're like, yes, okay, whatever it takes. Sure, you're going to pay me huge amount of money. I will. I will move. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. Well, the thing is, if you've got huge amounts of money, at least you can come back and visit. Yes. Yes. And I imagine that. It would be enough money where we wouldn't actually have to sell our so. Wow, so that would be good. So you'll have to have different different continents, yeah. and that's that's really a, yeah. a great a great freedom. Yes, but to have. But, but it could you know it could all come to nothing. Yeah. Nothing could change at all. It's, it, it, it's a little bit like gambling. It's a little bit like art. Yeah. It's a little bit like lots of things. It's a big opportunity. It's like a, it's a possibly a big opportunity. You know, it's, I guess is the way you look at it. But it's not completely, it's not completely there. So we'll see. Watch the space. I'll know more in two months' time. Okay. Well, this is around about the time when I ask my last question, which is: Do you have anything that you want to plug? which is a strange question to people who don't have things to plug. And what I always have been saying is people have been opening this up quite widely. So people have been plug- plugging charities and ideologies or points of view and all sorts of things. So interpret it as widely or as... Or, as, or you can plug something. Yeah. Oh, well, well being, being the, the good startup wife I am, I'm going to plug my husband's website, which is www.bookingbug.com. It's an online booking and reservation system for small to medium businesses where people can offer their time and services online through an affordable way of letting their clients book directly through the good. That's a good plug. I've not had anybody be as efficient, even when it's been their own thing. You're, 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 you're plugging your husband's business better than most people plug their own. So that's I've been great. doing it for years. You, you have, in the startup world, you have what's called an elevator pitch, where you have... 30 seconds to sum up your business and, and sell it to a potential investor. The idea being that, let's say you're on an elevator with somebody you yeah. recognize as somebody who could possibly give you money. You to be on an elevator with Brett Holderman from lastminute.com and I would really like it to invest in my company. So you sort of have to say, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so from this company. Let me tell you about it because I have until you get off the yeah. floor. So the elevator pitch is definitely something that all entrepreneurs well, I think master again I think it's another it's a thing that artists have to master as well I, 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 I'm getting better at doing an elevator style pitch for this show as I have to do it more and more often and, 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 and I often get to quite a good level after a while but I'm not very good at starting off well with my elevator pitch and I know a lot of artists a lot of my friends really struggle with that yeah. with, with summing up their work in a few sentences but it, it should be everyone, it should be everyone's goal I think 
it's like you just sort of have to write about your business like you would write a newspaper article in the pyramid style, you know? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, do you have anything else that you want to plug before? Yeah, not really. So it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Angela. Oh, thank you. And um, do you want to say goodbye to the audience? Goodbye, audience. I hope you enjoyed this interview. <laughs> I do. I hope I I did, and I hope you did too. Uh, goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.